How many of you have ever used hyperbole before? How many of you don't know what hyperbole is? Just be honest. Hyperbole is the hardest word in all the universe to understand. That's hyperbolic. How many of you have ever thought on a work day you were dying? Anyone? You're in the office and you think, I'm, I'm dying in here. You're not, you're not dying. It's just Tuesday. And it's not a great Tuesday. You're not dying. How many of you have ever been starving to death before you ate? Yes, yes. You, you aren't starving. I've seen you. I know myself. We're not near death. How many of you have ever lived the worst day that anyone has ever lived ever? Right? We have different definitions for stuff. Let me ask you this. How many of you have ever driven fast? Anyone? Anyone ever driven fast? How many of you have ever hit triple digits on the speedometer? Hold your hands up. We have law enforcement in the back of the room (laughs) waiting for. Yes. My grandma thinks 45 is fast. Somebody in here who's probably in their teenage years thinks 45 is miserably slow. I know that even when you go to the hospital, they have these, I don't know what they are, they are expressions. They have smiles, and then they have straight mouths, and then eventually they have big deep frowns. And you, because your definition of pain is so vastly different than anybody else's on the earth, and mine too, they have to give us pictures and say, point to the one that, that indicates your pain level. I just point to the worst one on earth. That's, that's me. Give me something that makes me sleep for the next four days. That's what I need. We have different definitions of being hungry or being busy or being stressed or being angry. Some young couples have had the worst argument ever until they've been married for five years. And they're like, that was actually getting along. I had no idea. Our definitions are so varied that if I were to ask you this question this morning to lay a baseline for our prayer life, I think all of us would be communicating something differently. If I asked you, have you ever agonized in prayer? For some, agonizing in prayer is that one day they got up early. For some, agonizing in prayer is when they clenched their hands and closed their eyes really hard and really prayed. For some, agonizing in prayer is that one time that they went eight minutes straight and they prayed. What is agonizing in prayer? I want to take you to Romans chapter 15, and I want to communicate to you an expectation for successful prayer as a believer. An aspect of our prayer life that should be visible. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the believers in Rome. And in Romans chapter 15, he is going to use a very particular word that communicates much about what our prayer lives should look like. Have you ever wondered why the Apostle Paul's ministry was so successful? 
so grand in its scope, so effective in its longevity, I think one of the great aspects of the Apostle Paul's ministry was his asking other people to pray for him. Just listen in to the scripture. He was writing to the believers in Ephesus in Ephesians 6. Here's what he says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Get this as he starts verse 19. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He is asking specifically for the believers in Ephesus to pray for him. Here's what he writes in 2 Corinthians 1.11. Ye also, way over there in Corinth, are helping together by prayer for us, which is a spiritual communication that praying for somebody is actually aiding them in the ministry. That's what Paul is saying. We are helped because you are there praying for us. Here's what he said to the believers in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. That the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Pray for us. We have ministry that we want to carry out and we need you to pray for us. When he was in bondage, he wrote to the believers in Philippi and he says this in Philippians 1.19. I know that this, my bondage, my imprisonment, shall turn to my salvation through your prayer. He had confidence that his bondage would end because people were praying for him. To the believers in Colossae, he says in Colossians 4.3, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ so that I can utter the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it known. I'm asking that you pray that I would have opportunity and then boldness to follow through on that opportunity. All Throughout his ministry, he asked people to pray for him. I have no doubt in my mind, it is communicated to us within Scripture, that the success, the breadth of the scope, the effectiveness of the longevity of the Apostle Paul's ministry, even as we read it this morning, is enabled in in part because people joined in prayer. And in Romans chapter 15, writing to believers that are in Rome... He is near the conclusion of this letter. And I want to read just one verse, and I want you to note an aspect of prayer that should be a hallmark for us. He writes this in verse 30. Now, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He is asking something very specific of the believers in Rome. He has just said to them, I am beseeching you, brethren. I am begging you as family. I am pleading with you. The word beseech is an urgent calling. It is an SOS. I am in this predicament. I am in this moment. I am in this situation pleading with you as family 
to pray for me. He even says in here very clearly, I'm not just asking you to pray so that my needs would be met. I am asking for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and the love of the Holy Spirit. It seems like he's laying it on kind of thick. The reality is he's communicating a biblical principle. Our prayers are always for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ's glorification. Prayed under the direction, in submission to, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he uses a word that stands out to me. That ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. He's asking us, these believers in Rome, and I believe as a principle to apply for us, to strive in prayer. Now a little bit of study that I took care of so you didn't have to mess with it in the Greek. We get in that word agony. Agonize with me. And that's why I began by saying we're using hyperbole. We all have different definitions for things. If I asked you, have you ever agonized in prayer? Perhaps we would think we were there. If I asked you, have you ever taken an agonizing jog? That might be the end of your driveway. For others, it might be a marathon. Have you ever agonized in prayer? When we read this, he is asking us to agonize in prayer. This should be a hallmark of the believer's prayer life that at times and in seasons, you agonize in prayer. That is a direct request. Paul's not asking for the believers in Rome to offer up a couple of short prayers on his behalf. Paul is asking the Romans to Agonize with him in prayer. Spiritual labor. Going into spiritual battle dressed in full array. If we are ever going to understand agonizing in prayer exactly as the word is being used and communicated so that we can apply it in our prayer lives, the only way that we can do that is to enter into the Garden of Gethsemane And watch Jesus pray an agonizing prayer. And then without applying our definition of agony, unifying all of our understandings to what it is that the Apostle Paul is asking for the believers in Rome and thus teaching should be a hallmark, a characteristic of our prayer life. Let's go into the garden with Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you need to understand that as we enter in, Judas, at this point in time, is hurrying up the hillside. More than likely, he's got 600 armed Roman soldiers with him. He has the temple police under the captain of the temple. He has a mob of others who have gathered together to come to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have the time to work our way through that entire hour of time, but I do want you to remember that when this mob of people arrives in the Garden of Gethsemane, they will find the Lord Jesus Christ ready and waiting for them. They will find the Lord Jesus Christ composed, they will find him submissive, and I think we could even describe it this way, even helpful to those who are there to arrest him. It is always stunning to me that in this moment of grief in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus still has the capacity to look at Judas the betrayer and call him friend. 
It is stunning to me that in a moment where Peter in the flesh leaps forward and lops off the ear of Malchus, that Jesus will stop him and tell him to put his dagger away and then heal the ear of Malchus. How can Jesus be so composed, so submissive, and even helpful to his captors in this moment? We could say, well, he was God in the flesh, that's how. But he was also 100% man. How? Well, I think one of the reasons is Jesus understood that the bitter cup that he was about to drink was from the hand of his sovereign father. He grasped that. But I think practically speaking, the application for us is that Jesus Christ was able to be submissive and composed and helpful in that moment because of his prayer in the garden. You study scripture, you'll find that people have, at times, a hard time with the will of God. Think of Noah. I know we think of Noah. I don't know about you. I'm not great around animals. All of that time on the ark with stinky animals would not appeal to me. But what would appeal less to me than all of that time on the ark, because I really wouldn't be bothered by being like the last six or seven people on earth. That kind of appeals to me. I'm that arrogant. What would bother me is the 120 years of being made fun of. 120 years of futile effort building this ark without any rain. Of having people mock me and question my entire existence. Sometimes the will of God is hard. I think of the Apostle Paul. Who after his conversion poured himself fully into the gospel work and ministry, and yet his life was hard. He tells us that he himself endured shipwreck and imprisonment and and beatings and starvation, and it wasn't hyperbolic speech for him. It was a fact of his everyday existence. Life at times in the will of God is hard. Sometimes the heat gets turned up a little bit. How do individuals like us stay composed and submissive and helpful, able to even ministry in those hours? It is only by prayer. And we have to learn how Jesus agonized so that we can gauge our prayer life. The Bible tells us this in Matthew 26, 37. He, Jesus, as he entered into the garden, took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. I always think it's interesting that Jesus had, as it were, an inner circle. Because that's everything that we would push against. But Jesus had an inner circle. He took with him Peter and James and John. He took them oftentimes places where not everybody got to go. And this moment is one of those. Into the garden, Jesus goes, the disciples are there, and he goes further ahead, and he takes with him Peter and James and John. And Jesus presses into the garden. Why? Well, I think Jesus wanted to personally mentor and disciple and teach Peter and James and John how to agonize in prayer. But I also have no doubt in my mind that Jesus wanted them there as eyewitnesses to his agony so that they could communicate what Jesus went through in the garden for our learning. It's stunning to watch. As Jesus prays an agonizing prayer, Strive together 
with me in your prayer to God for me. There are seasons where you and I must agonize in prayer. That's not merely getting up a little early. That's not closing our eyes and clenching our hands a little tighter. That's not merely praying a little longer. We have to grasp what it is scripturally. Agonizing in prayer. Isaiah prophesied of the Lord Jesus Christ's life. He said this in Isaiah 53.3. He, Jesus, is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows. Stop and think about the reality that the life and ministry of Jesus Christ was filled with sorrow. When we think serving the Lord must mean everybody loves us and everybody gets along with us and every day is exciting and filled with joy and happiness, remember that Jesus was a man of sorrows. Tough times were part of his entire life and I think we see them come to a climax in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, describing unto us this moment of prayer with Jesus, Matthew writes, and he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I mean, Matthew just told us from Peter and James and John's eyewitness account that as Jesus went further than those three, at a point, Jesus fell to the ground. Physically, his body was dealing with the weight of the cup of the wrath of God. Have this imagery in your mind. Jesus is not an actor. This isn't a group of producers and directors trying to enhance a screenplay. This is real life situation. And as Jesus enters into the garden, he literally gets a few steps ahead of Peter and James and John and collapses under the weight that he is carrying. In fact, indicated in the tense of the language is that he would struggle to his feet and he would fall again. Now, very vivid language is used in Luke 22 and verse 44 when we read this. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. No one is confused. Jesus was in an agony. He was striving in this moment. Physiological fallout as his body collapses to the ground. And he sweats great drops of blood depicted to us as falling down to the ground there in that olive garden of Gethsemane. And the great striking contrast between the only begotten Son of God and Peter and James and John is that on multiple occasions, Jesus composes himself to the degree that he comes back and he finds Peter and James and John asleep. I don't mean to indicate that you and I will ever attain the prayer life that Jesus Christ had, but we should aim for it. And I'd also say to you, if you think at this moment you have a prayer life indicative of striving and agonizing in prayer, perhaps you should be reminded of what Peter and James and John were doing. Mere feet from the Son of God collapsing to the ground, sweating great drops of blood. They were sleeping, and you and I would have done the same thing. We don't really comprehend what it is to wrestle in prayer like Jesus did. Why was Jesus filled with such agony? 
Why was he suffering so greatly? Well, I think he is aware in his omniscience and his sovereignty that Judas is about there. The hour has come and the minutes are ticking away and Judas is close by. Maybe he can even hear the clang of the armor and see some of the uplight from the torches that they were carrying. He has already prophesied that Peter, who he has nicknamed The Rock, is going to deny him openly on three separate occasions one of his faithful, who at this moment is sleeping a few feet away, even though Jesus said to him, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. I'm telling you, pray that you enter not into temptation, and he slept. I know for a fact that Jesus is carrying in this moment the rejection by the nation of Israel. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came unto his own speaking kingdom language and they reject him and deny him as the Messiah that he was. I know that in this moment he is carrying the fact that he will bear the brunt, the wrath of God for the sin of all mankind. And we cannot comprehend what that was. But the cup of of bitterness that Jesus speaks of in this moment in the Old Testament and in the New indicates unto us the wrath of God. Can you comprehend that all of the fury and wrath of God was poured out on all the sin of mankind on Jesus and Jesus is aware that this is coming? And I have no doubt that he was 100% God in the flesh, but he was also man and he is filled with terror in this moment. In fact, one of the gospel writers will tell us he was sorrowful and very heavy. He was troubled in his spirit, like it was pressing in on him from all sides. He was very heavy. That is indicative of the agony and the weight that he is actually carrying. In fact, in John chapter 14, as they're getting ready to exit the upper room from the Last Supper, Jesus says to the disciples that are gathered in there, Let not your hearts be troubled. Because a little earlier in John 13, we hear that the spirit of Jesus changed and the disciples there pick up on the fact that something's going on. Something's different with Jesus and he addresses it and says, let not your heart be troubled. But in a few minutes here in the garden, Jesus himself is troubled. This is agony that is being depicted for us. The visual imagery is impossible to avoid as he physically collapses, as he bleeds great drops of blood and sweat. In Mark 14, 35, as I read, he fell on the ground and prayed if it were possible that the hour would pass for him. Luke then tells us something that is stunning. In Luke twenty two forty three, 43, we read this. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven strengthening him. So great is this moment, so climactic is the spiritual battle in this moment that an angel appears from heaven to strengthen the Lord Jesus. That's the kind of weight, the agony, the striving that Jesus is enduring. It gives us a clue to that moment. And here's what he prayed. If it were possible that the hour might pass, even the word prayer that is used there is not the usual word for prayer that is used throughout the New Testament. This is next level praying. This is taking it up a notch as the word that is used there in that verse has the idea of begging somebody for something. 
has the idea of pouring out your heart. Jesus in this moment is pouring out his heart. Jesus in this moment is laying himself bare. Jesus in this moment is unloading on the Father. And he's teaching us. In fact, as Jesus prays according to Mark, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou will. Abba, Father, it is intriguing that the disciples can hear as Jesus collapses because he prayed this prayer again and again, Abba, Father. He is using a word of intimacy and nearness. Even in this season of incredible agony, he did not imagine that God disliked him. Even in this moment of incredible agony, he realizes there is intimacy with his Father in heaven, who is not reluctant to love on him and do for him. Jesus held on to that. The the audacious request of Jesus in this moment, as he says plainly, take away this cup from me. Take away, I know you can do anything. I believe that you can do anything. And under that, take away this cup from me. That is a direct request of Jesus. And then he says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. He surrenders to the Father's will in that moment so plainly. It is stunning the prayer of the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, looking back now on that moment in the garden. He writes this, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, strong crying and tears. Again, I want you to understand, this is not Jesus trying to put on a show for the disciples. This was not evangelistic license going on in the garden. This was a real life moment. This is spiritual battle on a level we cannot comprehend. This is the God-man struggling with the will of God. This is Jesus. This is the same Jesus who walked on the water and the same Jesus who calmed the storm and the same Jesus who cast out demons and the same Jesus who fed 5,000. This is the same Jesus praying in agony in the garden saying, take this cup from me with strong crying and tears physically falling to the ground, sweating great drops of blood. This is not just a little longer praying. This is not getting up just a little bit earlier. This is literally laying himself bare. This is literally begging the Father. This is unloading on his heavenly Father. That's what this is because he was sorrowful and he was very heavy. Now that we have taken a step back, And we have heard the Apostle Paul say to the believers in Rome, I have a request for you like we're family. For the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. I'm asking you not to offer up a few short prayers. I'm asking you to agonize in prayer for me. And all of us have a different definition of hardship and stress and fast and hungry and anguish and agony. And yet when we take a step back scripturally and we walk into the garden, we learn that our definition of agonizing prayer falls woefully short of scripture's expectation. I wonder if 
We don't have some unresolved situations in our lives because we do not agonize in prayer. I wonder if there aren't individuals in here that are completely owned and dominated by a sin because they have not agonized in prayer with God about overcoming that temptation. I wonder if the impotence of the gospel and the unpractical nature of the gospel as the world views it is not because we're not saying it, And not because we're not gathered here on a Sunday morning, but because we are not agonizing in prayer about doors of utterance being opened up and boldness to communicate and God to come down and revive us. I wonder, do we truly comprehend what prayer actually looks like according to the New Testament? Or have we developed our own vocabulary and in doing so, weakened and fallen short of the Scripture's expectation? agonizing in prayer. From this moment in the garden forward, Jesus is completely composed. There's not even a hint of hesitation as he walks forward all the way to the cross. It is at this moment in time that we have to amplify the language of the Bible to enhance our understanding. As Jesus goes before Caiaphas, as Jesus stands before Annas and they smack him around, Jesus, silent as a lamb, takes it. As he goes before Pilate and Pilate inquires of him, Jesus stands there peacefully, though he could have brought the whole world to a standstill. I believe that as Jesus was beaten, they would have taken him to that stump in the courtyard and that Roman would have whipped and flogged him. I think with every other prisoner, they had to fight them to the place where they tied them down and Jesus willingly walked in and allowed himself to be bound. Every other prisoner, they had to pin to the cross. They had to hold their arms down while the stakes were driven in. But Jesus said of himself, I willingly lay down my life for you. I don't think they fought Jesus. I think Jesus extended his arms and took the nails. How? Are you that composed? How are you that submissive to the will of the Father? How are you that able to help and minister to others in your hour of need? Agonizing prayer. How do you overcome temptation like that? Agonizing prayer. When the disciples could not cast out the demon, Jesus comes down and says, Oh, faithless generation, Jesus, why couldn't we cast out that demon? This kind cometh not forth, but by prayer and fasting, Jesus said. There are seasons, there are situations, there are moments where we must agonize in prayer. And I wonder, do we ever take it there? Why do we have to agonize in prayer? Why does it have to be so hard? You ever stop to think everything that you're supposed to be doing is hard and everything that you want to do and that's easy to do is bad for you? Everything that I want to eat in this world, the doctors say, no. All I want to do is eat pizza and fast food. Literally. It's easy. I like it. The more chemicals you put in my food, the better it tastes. I just like it that way. The more organic, the less I want it. You tell me here is organic vegetables. I'm already like, I don't want them. I'm out. But if you process my food, I'm probably going to like it. If you process it and then put chocolate on it, I'm probably going to like it more. If you put it through a fast food window, I'm probably going to like it even more. 
I want it. It's bad for me. Everything that's bad for me, I want, and everything that's good for me is hard. I don't, I don't, I don't want to exercise, but it's good for you. Do you comprehend that these hard things are good for us? And we have to understand that our prayer is a struggle, not because God doesn't like us. Why is prayer agonizing? Why is it a struggle? Why do we have to struggle and strive? Is it because God doesn't want to do things for us? Not at all. We read in James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. He's not going to yell at you for asking him something. Jesus tells us a story in Luke 11. Here's what he says. I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one of you that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And then Jesus says this. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father. Will he give him a stone? No. If he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? No. Or if he ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? No. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? He gives good gifts. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift. God is not reluctant to to do things for us. That's why I emphasize Jesus, even in this moment of agony, still called him Abba Father. He realized he was still loved. He still had an intimate relationship. God's not reluctant. We don't agonize in prayer because we have to badger God. We agonize in prayer because spiritual battle is real. We fight against Satan. Do you comprehend that Satan is against your prayer life? We read of the wiles of the devil, the fiery darts of the devil in Scripture. He's against us. And for us to pray, I mean really pray, is a struggle because of spiritual battle. It is a striving. It is difficulty. It is an agony. Don't underestimate spiritual battle. You also may be different than me, but my flesh works against me. We live, this is always encouraging to me, in a body of death. Isn't that good? So sometimes when you say, I'm dying here, you're telling the truth. You're on your way out. Your body is mortified. How many of you realize you are breaking down with every passing day? Yes. You are dying. We have in these bodies of death an old nature. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, 7 that our flesh is enmity against God. In Galatians, Paul says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Listen, it's hard to pray. It's difficult to pray. Sometimes I just don't want to. My flesh fights against me. It craves the the carnal things. And prayer is a spiritual endeavor. I'm fighting a spiritual battle against Satan. I'm fighting against my flesh. I'm fighting against the rush of this world. Who has time to pray anyways? I got way too much to do to stop and pray. After all, I got football to watch. I can't pray. We go to a lot of church. You comprehend that I have to write a lot of sermons just to feed the beast? That is our church schedule? I don't have time to pray. I've got sermons to write. I don't have time to pray. I've got ministry to do. I don't have time to pray. I'm married. 
I don't have time to pray. I'm a father. I don't have time to pray. I've got stuff going on in my life. The rush of this world makes it hard for us to pray. Maybe some other time. Maybe in 2023, that'll be one of my resolutions. Prayer is a struggle. Prayer is difficult. It is striving. It is an agony because it's spiritual battle, because we're working against our flesh, because the rush of this world, and yet the Apostle Paul throws it out there with an expectation that it would be fulfilled. I'm asking you believers in Rome to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Would you agonize in prayer? Not just a few short words. I mean, agonize in prayer with me. Well, agony is this, and agony's getting up a little early, and agony's listening to you preach. I get it. All of our definitions of agony go out the window. We have a clear depiction of what agonizing in prayer looks like. It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when I hear what Paul asks, and then I see what Jesus does, I take a look at my prayer life and I go, oh, I understand now why I'm ineffective. I understand now that my prayer life does not measure up. Now, I'm not saying all prayer is agonizing prayer. But there are seasons, there are situations, there are temptations, there are moments where this level is an expectation for God to work. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.